Once again, I want to say it is a joy for my wife and for me to be here with you on this Lord's Day to sing of the wonderful work of Christ at the cross. Uh, it's uh, such a, a joy to be able to do that in various churches and join together in the like precious faith and worship such a great and sweet Savior that we have, Jesus Christ. This morning, if you were here, we looked at a wonderful text from Hebrews chapter 7 as, as the writer of Hebrews unfolds for us just a, a little glimpse of the wonderful Savior that we have in Jesus as he focuses on the intercessory ministry of Jesus that takes place even now. We looked into that text and saw that as the writer of Hebrews compared the old priesthood that the, the Old Testament taught and displays for us and compared that with the new priesthood of Jesus, we saw that there is a wonderful conclusion to make that Jesus is, is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. Well, this evening I want to look and continue uh, in looking at this ministry of intercession, but look at it now from the standpoint of the Holy Spirit. Look at how the believer is sustained and brought through to the end of, of his redemption through the intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this is so important for us because, as I said this morning, it is so easy for us to think that while God takes care of the past in terms of the work of Christ on the cross, in, in the sacrifice that Christ provided and then raising Him from the dead, and then as we look to the future and think of our, our redemption in terms of its glorification, we can see that fully in the hands of God. And yet when we look at our Christian lives, it is so easy to begin to think that it is in our hands and contingent upon our abilities and contingent upon our faithfulness, when in reality the Scripture is very clear, it remains contingent fully upon the work of God. And that is a great and precious encouragement to us. So this evening as we continue that study of the ministry of intercession done by the the Spirit now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we will look specifically at a wonderful text found in verses 26 and 27. But before we get there, we need to establish some of the context. As we know, this letter to the Romans is a letter about the righteousness of God from start to finish. The Apostle Paul for that church in Rome which he had never met, and they there in Rome had never seen Paul face to face. Paul expounds, he exposits this wonderful doctrine of the righteousness of God. And after establishing some initial words in the very beginning of this letter, he then turns to focus on our need for righteousness, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and going all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, our need for God's righteousness because we in and of ourselves exist under a state of condemnation. And then beginning in chapter 3 verse 21 and going to the end of chapter 5, Paul then turns to look at the provision of God's righteousness through justification. How God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us through justification. 
And then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul turns then to establish another aspect of the doctrine of God's righteousness by by explaining how God's righteousness is demonstrated in the life of those who have been justified. It is a great section on the sanctification of the believer and how that's possible and how that takes place, all done particularly by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul focuses on that that ministry of the Spirit in chapter 8, and that's what brings us to where we are now in this letter, Romans chapter 8. As Paul continues to explain the demonstration of God's righteousness in the work of sanctification, he shows us in chapter 8 that this is all contingent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. First, in the first 11 verses of chapter 8, in verses 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul explains very clearly that our victory over sin is provided or achieved by the Holy Spirit. He then looks in verses 12 to 17 at the the Spirit's ministry in, in testifying of our adoption as the sons of God. And at the end of verse 17, he makes a, a, a subtle shift as he talks about life in the Spirit. He now introduces an important theme, which he then develops in verse 18 all the way through to verse 30. This is the theme of suffering. In verse 17, for example, well, let me read in verse 16, as he continues to expound the Spirit's ministry of testifying of our adoption, he writes this, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. Then Paul begins in verse 18, going all the way to verse 30, as I said, describing the believer's glorification, showing how our lives are on this pathway to ultimate glory. But it is not a path that avoids suffering. Notice in verse 18, as he begins this section that goes all the way to verse 30, the section in which our verses are found, he writes this. He says, again, picking up the theme of suffering, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That glory he will talk about beginning in verse 28 in its final sense, that God has predestined us to this glory. But what he is speaking of here specifically is this time in the believer's life, this current age, this current period in our lives, which is a time of suffering. There is this span that takes us from that initial moment of justification to that final moment of glory. It is not a time of utopia, Paul describes, but it is a time that he describes as a time of suffering. 
Now, beginning then with verse 18, let me read through to our verses, verses 26 and 27, and notice how Paul elaborates on this suffering and brings it to this important teaching in verses 26 and 27 as to how we endure through this suffering. He writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul addresses here a very real Reality that all of us are aware of. It's the reality of suffering. It's our poverty that we experience in this life, in the Christian life. This kind of suffering that is in view here is, is not a, a kind of suffering that results from persecution. There's nowhere in this context that Paul is describing this particular suffering as persecution. He's not even necessarily looking at this suffering as, as the direct consequences of our sin, although that would certainly be to a degree wrapped into this. Rather, the suffering that Paul is describing here is the reality that we face as Christians, as those who have been justified, declared righteous, the suffering that we nonetheless face in this world that is subject to decay. It is the suffering that we face living under the effects of the curse in this world and living in bodies that are under the curse in this world. It is suffering that comes as a result of living in a place where things are not the way they should be. This is a daily suffering. This is the suffering that comes living in bodies that have not yet been redeemed fully to their ultimate glory. It is living in a world where the effects of sin are not, are not kept from us, but we feel their circumstances, we feel their consequences even in the lives of others as others commit those sins and, and the consequences still come onto us. 
It is a life of struggle. It is a life of groaning, Paul says. And all of us can identify with that. This is not a life of utopia. It's not a, an easy life. And so the Apostle Paul, with that reality in mind, writes to these Romans to encourage them to encourage them in the midst of the groaning that they experience, the reality of this life, he writes to encourage them in these verses of a very important ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as we look at this text in verses 26 and 27, we're going to organize our thoughts here from this encouragement along these three lines. First of all, as Paul encourages these believers acutely aware of the decay of this world, of the decay of their own bodies. First of all, Paul says this, remember your persistent poverty. Remember your persistent poverty. We're going to see that in the middle of verse 26. Secondly, he says, recognize your personal helper. Recognize your personal helper. We'll see that at the beginning of verse 26 and at the end of verse 26. And then thirdly, he says, rejoice in his perfect intercession. Rejoice in his perfect intercession. That will be manifest to us in verse 27. Let's look at the first of these lines of Paul's encouragement. He does say this. He says, remember your persistent poverty, and that may come as an affront to us. Why is this important? And, and this actually has encouragement because, as we're going to see, Paul includes himself in this, this great apostle to the Gentiles, this greatest of theologians. Paul includes himself and, and says, this is our state. Notice the middle of verse 26. He begins this way and says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps, now notice these words, our weakness. The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. In the middle of that verse, Paul makes two assertions about our poverty. First of all, a general one, and then secondly, a specific one. Let's look at each of these. The, the general weakness, the general poverty that Paul describes the Spirit helps our weakness, he says. He makes a general statement here, an assertion regarding the reality that all believers face. We have intrinsic weakness. And this term is found in the singular, not the plural. He doesn't say weaknesses as if to suggest that some have certain ones and others have other weaknesses or that you can count them or identify them. Instead, he identifies it simply as, as, as one single term in the singular to emphasize this intrinsic reality. This is not a set of, uh, or a, a, a collection of besetting problems. It's just a, a, a corporate reality. We live in this condition of weakness. Not strength in ourselves, but weakness. And as I said, notice the personal pronoun here. He, he doesn't say the Spirit also helps your weakness as if to suggest to the Romans that they were perhaps immature or had not gotten to that place of spiritual growth where Paul was at. He's not saying to them, this is just a condition that you face at a certain point in your Christian life. No, he says our weakness to suggest that this is a reality that all Christians, even the most mature face. He includes himself in this, in this definition. 
Now again, what what is this weakness? And it's important to connect that word weakness all the way back to what he says in verse 17 about suffering with Christ and then what he says in verse 18 about the sufferings of this present time. That's the weakness that is in view here, the, the groaning that we read about in those preceding verses. That is our weakness. We suffer in this present age In the age between justification and glorification, we suffer because we are indeed weak. We live in a world under the curse. We live in a world that is fundamentally broken. We live in bodies that are broken. We live in a world that is subject to futility, that is enslaved to corruption. The Lord hasn't removed us from that. He's left us in it. It is a world that Solomon says is a world filled with vanities. We earn, as Paul says in verse 23, for the redemption of our bodies. It's not utopia. It's weakness and suffering, and, and ironically, there's comfort in these words, right? Because it's so easy to think that if I suffer, it means there's something wrong with me because it's my fault, that God is displeased with me, and I need to get to a different level of Christianity so that I can flee from this suffering and enjoy a life of ease. But the comfort of these words that Paul writes, including himself in this, is that you know the experience of suffering means we're in good company. We're in Paul's company. So we must remember that That's weakness in that general sense. But Paul develops this further right there in the middle of the verse, going from that weakness to something more specific. Notice what he says there in our text right after the semicolon. He says, For we do not know how to pray as we should. After saying that believers are marked by a general weakness, he now says that believers are marked by a particular one, one specific one, and that is that we do not know how to pray as, as we should. Now certainly all of us could answer this question the same way, would answer the question the same way. One way to, to humble uh, anybody is to ask them about their prayer life. And of course we automatically look down and acknowledge the fact that we don't pray as we should. That is certainly weakness. Even though we've been reconciled to God, given His We've been given His Holy Spirit who testifies in our hearts that we are the children of God still. We we struggle in this area of prayer. But Paul is, is not simply pointing to the fact that we don't pray as much as we should. There's something much more specific here as he describes this weakness. He says, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Now notice again as we get into this that Paul is including himself in here. The pronouns are all first person. We do not know how to pray as we should. Paul is is in this with us. But as we look at the text, there's a, a translational issue here that is important to bring out. When we look at the NASB, it suggests that we are ignorant in a certain way. We're ignorant perhaps as to the manner of the praying. Notice the text says, for we do not know how to pray as we should. 
And it suggests this idea that we don't know how to pray in the sense of our, the manner of it. Should we pray on our knees or should we pray flat out on our faces? Should we pray with hands uplifted? Should we pray this amount of time? Should we pray with this kind of order in our praying? How should we pray? But that's actually not what Paul is emphasizing here. The issue of our ignorance and weakness here is not the manner of the praying. The, the phrase could be translated this way. The what we should pray for according to need, we do not know. The what we should pray for according to need, we do not know. The emphasis that Paul makes here is not on the manner of the praying about which we are ignorant, but on the content and you might say, well, wait a minute. Don't we have wonderful examples of prayer in the, in the scriptures that provide us with this content? You could look at the praying of Daniel, for example. In Daniel chapter 9, a great paradigm for praying. Or we could look certainly at Jesus' instruction in Matthew chapter 6 when he taught the disciples what to pray. Or we could look at Paul's exemplary prayers in his writings to the Ephesians or to the Thessalonians or, or, or to the Philippians. What, what do you mean, Paul, that we don't know what to pray? Well, Paul is taking this in a much more specific direction. The issue here of the content of the praying, that about which we are ignorant and weak, is that we do not know what to pray in specificity related to our personal suffering, related to our personal circumstances in the midst of this cursed world. Yes, we know the general paradigms and we know the great doctrines that must be reflected in our praying, but what Paul is getting at here, our weakness, is that in the midst of our suffering, we do not know what to pray for according to our need. And we've all been there. And some of you have been in this much more than others. That in the midst of some circumstance, the question is, what do I pray for? What is God doing? I don't even know. Yes, I know that I must have adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication in my praying, but in this circumstance, how do I pray for myself? What requests do I make according to my need? I don't even know. In the fog of suffering caused by this broken world, we, we are brought to this point of ignorance and weakness, and, and it's so easy to, to throw up our hands and just say, I don't know what my need even is. Paul acknowledges that. He says, yes, we are ignorant. We are weak. We are impoverished, especially in this matter of praying. We have a great illustration of this in the Apostle Paul's own life, don't we? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he speaks of the thorn in his flesh. And notice the words there that help us understand what he's speaking of here in Romans 8 when he speaks of this ignorance, this weakness. 
2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7, Paul writes, Concerning this, this thorn in the flesh, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And Paul encourages these believers in, in, in Rome and he says this, you know what? I know it seems so counterintuitive, but it's a good place to be when you know you're weak. God's power will be perfected. God's power will be displayed in your life. You don't need to have all the answers. You just need to know that He does. So Paul begins here and and, and, and calls upon us to remember that this is our state. This is our weakness. This is our persistent poverty, and it's okay. It's okay. He then moves us to our second point here in this text. And here is the, where the encouragement grows. He says this, recognize your personal helper. Recognize your personal helper. Helper. Go back to verse 26 and notice how Paul bookends that issue of weakness with these two statements about the help that we've been given. He begins in verse 26 and says this, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Here we have Paul's specific and, and his general and specific response to the general and specific weakness that we have in our lives. First of all, notice the, the general response to our general weakness. He begins verse 26 with these words, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. The Spirit also helps. Now that little word also there ties this teaching of the Holy Spirit to other ministries that the Holy Spirit does to those who are in Christ. He's spoken of this in the preceding verses in this chapter. In chapter 8, the Spirit dwells in us, Paul teaches in verse 9, the Spirit dwells in us. In verses 13 and 14, Paul teaches that it is the Spirit who enables the mortification of sin in the believer's life. That's what the Spirit does. In verse 16, he says it's the Spirit who testifies to our status as children of God. But now there's another ministry of the Holy Spirit that is brought to bear, that is brought to the attention of the, these Roman believers and to us. He also helps. He doesn't do these other things Exclusively, There's something more that he does wherever he is present. He also helps. Now that verb in the English seems mundane to help. You, you've probably even stated it several times today. It's a common word, but in the original, this is no common word. 
It's a very, very rare verb that Paul puts together in order to emphasize this reality. I wish there was a different word that would communicate the very unique and special help that Paul has in mind here. The, the verb is made up of, of three other words. It's, it's made up of the word to hold, and then the word in the place of, and then the word together with. To hold, in the place of, and together with. The idea of that verb, which is so rare, is, is the idea of to take hold of something together with something, together with someone else for their benefit, for that person's benefit. To take hold of something together with another for his or her benefit. That's the idea of the help. What Paul says here is that in the midst of this weakness, Oh, dear believer, you're not alone. This is not a burden that you bear by yourself. Instead, God has sent His Spirit in the midst of that general weakness not to remove it, but to come alongside of you and to take hold of that burden and to walk with you for your benefit. He comes alongside of us, the Spirit does. He, he takes hold of this weakness, this burden. He helps us bear it. That is His ministry, and this is what He does to bring us all the way to the glory that is spoken of in the verses that follow. But not only is there that general help that meets our general poverty, but there is a specific help that helps us in our specific poverty. Notice the end of verse 26 when he says, Paul does, that we do not know what to pray as we should according to our need, Paul says the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's a very strong contrast that is present in this verse after Paul describes us as not knowing what to pray for according to need. He says, but, strong contrast, but, the Spirit intercedes for us. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit is the one who prays for us. There's a very deliberate contrast here between the ignorance and inability of the believer in knowing what the will of God is and the ability of the Spirit the ability of the Spirit. And the verb that is used here is the verb to intercede. Now we've seen this verb to intercede in its simple form in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. We, we saw that this morning to describe what Christ does. He always lives to intercede for us. We see that simple verb as well in in verse 34 of Romans chapter 8, where, where Paul will transition to talk there about the intercession of Christ. But what's important to note here with the presence of this verb to intercede is it's not the exact same word that we find in Hebrews chapter 7 or later on in, in Romans 8 to speak of the intercession of Christ. This is a more intensive word for intercede. It takes that same word that 
Paul uses of Jesus in Romans 8.34 or the writer of Hebrews uses of Jesus in, in, in Hebrews 7 and Paul intensifies it by adding another word to it to, to create a brand new word that brings emphasis to it. He wants to, to brand this into the minds of the Roman believers. This verb means to meet in and on behalf of to meet in and on behalf of, to meet in the midst of a need and to, to speak on behalf of the one who is needy. It is, it is intercession intensified. Specifically right there, Paul says, where we fall short, where we simply do not know how to pray, what to pray in that moment when we don't know what God is doing, when we don't know what to ask because of the suffering, the weakness of living in this world, it's right there, right in that very place where the Spirit does the praying. He is the one who intercedes. And what's amazing to note here by this intensified intercession is that while Jesus is described as well as having an ongoing continuous ministry of intercession for us. That intercession is described always at be, as being at the right hand of God in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God as Jesus continually applies the finished work of his redemption to all of those who come to God through him. But what is amazing here as Paul describes this intercession, this intercession of the Spirit is that this intercession takes place within us it takes place in the very place of the need notice again the text Paul says he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words now this term with groanings has been the source of a lot of speculation the, the charismatics would say that this is some kind of ecstatic tongue speaking worship language or mystics would say that this groaning is the groaning that is produced by some form of deep religious emotion. But that is not what Paul is speaking of here. This kind of groaning is a continual groaning, not a moment of some spiritual ecstasy. This kind of groaning is not some achievement that some think that they can arrive at, at some kind of mountaintop experience. No, this is something that takes place in our very weakness. This is not a kind of groaning that is unique to certain Christians. It occurs with all believers, all who have been, who have been justified by God and adopted as his sons and daughters. Moreover, this is a groaning not of our voice. This is a groaning of the Spirit himself. Notice the progression even in these verses. In verses 19 to 22, he speaks of how creation groans. Creation groans under, uh, under the weight of, of this corruption. Then in verses 23 to 25, it's the believers who groan. We ourselves groan. Even we ourselves groan. But here, now it is the Spirit who groans. 
And some theologians have said, well, this cannot possibly be the Spirit because the Spirit doesn't groan. He's not under this corruption as the world and as, as we are. But what we do find here is Paul says, no, the Spirit is groaning not because of his weakness, but because of his imminence in our lives. He is so dedicated to us. He cares for us so much that he groans on our behalf. The Spirit himself intercedes with groaning. And this groaning, Paul says, is not something that we hear. It is too deep for words. What, what condescension we find here. What, what glorious considerateness we find on the part of the Holy Spirit who comes to take up His residence within us. He indwells us, as Paul has said. He testifies with our souls that we are the children of God. And then as we live as these justified but not yet glorified believers, as we groan, as we cry, as tears are shed over this life, the Spirit is the one who shares in it. And He does it inaudibly to us and it leads us perhaps to this ignorance of this ministry that is taking place and this is what Paul is getting at because we don't hear him we think nothing is happening we think he's distant from us but Paul says no he, he groans with you and he intercedes in a language that you cannot hear but he does and that leads us to this third, this third encouragement that we draw from this precious text in verse 27. Rejoice then in his perfect intercession. Remember your persistent poverty. Recognize your personal helper. But now rejoice in his perfect intercession. Think for just a moment of, of the greatest human mediators in history. Even those great mediators, whoever they may be, all share something in common. There is ignorance in those mediators. Yes, they'll come between heads of state and they'll mediate between great political powers. But there's something that marks those mediators. They really do not know what each is thinking. All they can do is operate on the basis of what is told to them. And they function in this kind of, of, of mediatorial role just hoping they understand correctly what is being told to them. Those are the greatest mediators in, in human history. But the picture here is different. This is no normal mediation. These two parties, first of all, are in no way equal. One is weak and ignorant and does not even know what he needs. The other is perfect and omniscient who searches and knows all the hearts. Notice verse 27. And he, that is God who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to God. There is such a vast difference here between these two parties, between us and God. And yet we have this perfect intercessor who bridges that gulf. Notice 
how he how the one is described he is described verse 27 the the father is described as the one who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the spirit is what we have here is this this description of God as as this great omniscient one he is the great heart searcher He's the one that Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so on the one hand, we are frightened by this reality, by the omniscience of God. But Paul writes that not to frighten the Roman believers, not to frighten us by this reality of, of divine omniscience. Instead, th- this, this reality of divine omniscience, Paul writes about in order to encourage us. Why? Because he knows the groanings of the Spirit. That's the point. His omniscience knows exactly what those prayers of the Spirit are. Notice again, verse 27, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He intercedes, the Spirit does, according to God. That's that's what the Spirit does. He intercedes for the saints. Notice that precious term there, Even though we are weak, even though we do not know what to pray, even though we are marked by poverty, even though we suffer, we are still described as saints. We have already been justified. God already looks on us as holy. And more than that, this Spirit now intercedes for us according to God's will. Literally, according to God. And, and we know that God answers all prayers that are made according to His will. We know that from 1 John 5, 14-15, where John writes, This is the confidence which we have before Him, before God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. But what is the problem with us when we don't know what the will of God is? We don't know how to make those prayers according to that will, and so we face that poverty, that weakness, that groaning. But Paul says here, oh, that's okay, believer. Because there is one who does know what the will of the Father is. And in your groaning, he is groaning, and his prayers for you are perfect. He prays specifically for what you need in that moment. And what is the will of God in that? Notice verse 28. We know verse 28 so well. It is on mantles, on fireplaces, on bumper stickers, in every kind of Hobby Lobby kind of thing. They paint this verse everywhere, but it, it cannot be disconnected from what we've just studied. Verse 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so what Paul is saying here. In the midst of our suffering, when we fear that we 
don't know what is going on. We fear and we, we, we become discouraged by not knowing how to pray. I don't know what I should be praying for here in this illness or in this problem that I face in this world. How do I pray? And Paul says, you know what? The Spirit will do that for you. It's okay. And he knows exactly what is pleasing to the Father. And he will groan in the midst of your groaning in an unaudible way to intercede on your behalf. And he prays perfect prayers. And the Father loves to answer those prayers. And what will those prayers aim toward? Good. All things to work together for good. He knows how to pray for that. People sometimes ask, why does God not answer my prayers, especially in the midst of suffering? Why is God not more imminent and involved in my life? Why does God seem so distant from my circumstances, my groaning? And Paul would say, oh, dear, dear one, God is answering prayers. Always. He's answering the best ones. The ones that are best for you. You have the Holy Spirit interceding on your behalf. And whether you recognize it or not, He is praying for you. And even when you don't know what to pray, when you fail to pray, oh, beloved, Paul says, the Spirit does it for you. What a wonderful encouragement that we draw from this 24-7 in good times and bad and especially in those difficult moments when we are at the end of ourselves the Spirit is doing exactly that which He has been sent to do. As we close just a few things for us to remember as we take this text and apply it to our lives. First of all Don't be impatient with the problems of life, thinking or at least acting practically as if God has lost control. He hasn't. We will suffer. It is our lot in this life between justification and glorification. We have weakness. Don't be surprised. God has not lost control. Second, Don't become disappointed in your praying. You may come to those times where you search the Scriptures for some kind of insight, some aspect of God's will that would direct you in the midst of that moment of suffering, that that expression, that revelation of the will of God. You search for it, you can't find it, and it's so easy to become disappointed in that moment in prayer. But Paul here tells us, that what matters most is not our praying, but the Spirit's. And don't at all be discouraged. He is praying for you. Yes, we will always struggle in this life in prayer. Our limited understanding of what is taking place will will always mark us. But Paul says, don't become disappointed in your praying. Third, Don't think you know the best path to final redemption. 
Don't think you know the the best path to get you from justification to, to glorification. God knows that best path. That is His will. Yes, He has not revealed it. He has kept all the details from you. But you can take comfort knowing that His ultimate goal is to bring you to good. It's to make you conform to the image of Jesus Christ. He will get you there. And when you don't know what that pathway is, it's okay. The Spirit does. And He knows the mind of God. And God knows the mind of the Spirit. And they together will get you there. Finally, don't fail to give thanks for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. He is that silent helper that has been given to all who are in Christ. He is that pledge, that down payment that testifies that all those who receive that down payment will make it to the end. There is absolute certainty in it. And not only is He given as a down payment, but that Spirit has been given to comfort us along the way and to pray for us in ways we can't even imagine. Don't fail to give thanks for God's precious gift of the Spirit. Let's do that even right now. Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon these precious words, we thank you again for the great comfort that you give to us in your word. We can't even imagine what life would be like without this word that ministers to us so deeply. And when we read these words of the Spirit's intercession for us, our hearts are so encouraged. We thank you for him And while we do confess how prayerless we often are, how frustrated we become in our circumstances, in our yearning for final glorification, how impatient we become, and even at times how distrustful we are of your ways, this text admonishes us and encourages us that you have not lost control and that your Spirit will get us through to the end. And that ultimately our arrival at that final glorification is not dependent upon our praying, but upon the Spirit's praying. And because we do not hear Him, we do ask that you would increase our love for Him on the basis of this precious text. And we thank you that you have not left us alone, but have given us a sure helper. We thank you for him in the name of Jesus. Amen.